Did you know that Lynchburg, Virginia used to be called Lunchburg? During World War I, newspapers all over the United States called Lynchburg Lunchburg because of its famous Red Cross Canteen. All told, there were about 7,000 American Red Cross Canteens set up at railroad depots across the country during what was then called the Great War. One of them was at Lynchburg's Kemper Street Station. At Lynchburg's canteen, the women of the Hill City distributed sandwiches, coffee, cigarettes, postcards, magazines, and other items to soldiers headed to military training camps in the South or the massive Norfolk Naval Base and then on to the war in Europe. Troop trains arrived day and night, and the canteen ladies welcomed anywhere from 75 to 3,000 soldiers a day. Between 1917 and 1918, thousands of soldiers passed through Lynchburg. These ladies were purposely kept from the front lines. They were not allowed to enlist, but they helped the fight. In American memory, World War I is often overshadowed by World War II. We all know about Rosie the Riveter and the stories of some of our grandmothers who worked in factories, nursed wounded soldiers, and fought the war from their homes by rationing, writing letters, and donating nylons. But how did their foremothers join the fight during World War I? How did they carve out opportunity in a society that understood gender very differently than we do today? How did they flex their patriotism? Who were these women, and what does their story tell us about women's power and influence during the early 20th century? In the small towns, the women enjoy making donuts, pie, cake, fried chicken, and preserves as gifts to the troops. And the experienced soldier is always eager to pass through a rural section for this reason. Many municipalities have endeared themselves to American troops by the hospitality extended to them at their railway stations. Some of the troops at Kemper Station were from Lynchburg and the surrounding counties. Others were just passing through. Regardless, the service was apparently so good and so appreciated by the soldiers that soon newspapers as far away as Los Angeles, California were reporting the Hill City had a new nickname. So many collations of sandwiches, coffee, etc., have been served to train loads of hungry troops passing through Lynchburg, Virginia by the patriotic women of that southern city that the army, out of a sense of gratitude, has dubbed the place Lynchburg. The Lynchburg Red Cross Canteen was organized in September of 1917 by a woman named Lita McLeod. Lita was the wife of a Scottish blacksmith named Charles McLeod. There, Charlie was headed off to War II and would eventually serve in France. Lita recruited about 50 women from the community to work with her at the canteen. One of them was Sarah Norville Craighill, a member of the local Craighill family. Sarah, who went by Norville, lived with her widowed mother on Fort Avenue, just beyond Fort Early. Her father, Attorney Robert Templeton Craighill had died in 1907. I'll let Norville take it from here. It was September 25, 1917, when I heard the news that the National Guard was going off to Camp McClellan for training the next day. They had to go all the way to Alabama without a single stop. 
Mrs. Lita McLeod was recruiting ladies from the city to help make food, press coffee, and fold newspapers for all the soldiers heading out. I come from a family of proud soldiers, so of course I wanted to help. Daddy fought for the 12th Virginia Cavalry in what they call the Civil War these days. Daddy's brother was a surgeon in the Civil War and afterward in Lynchburg. Another brother was a U.S. Army general. My brother Bobby was a lieutenant colonel in the National Guard. He volunteered for the war with Spain and fought Pancho Villa and the Mexicans down on the border. When the United States sent soldiers to the Great War, he went to France. My nephew Edley, Bobby's son, was in the Army too. He was one of the Lynchburg Musketeers, part of the National Guard. He went to Europe during the war and later wrote about it in a book titled The Musketeers. And Edley's son, poor Edley Jr., died at Normandy in the next World War. There's a monument to him at the city stadium, what used to be the fairgrounds. So of course I volunteered to work at the canteen. It was my duty as a patriotic Christian woman. And to be honest, the thought of spending my days serving hundreds of handsome soldiers wasn't a bad thought either. At 38, I was as old as some of their mothers, but it would be nice to get out of the house and do some good. In the early days of the Lynchburg Canteen, the women paid for the food and other items with their own money or with donations from friends. And they didn't know exactly when the troops would pass through Lynchburg either, so there was a lot of waiting. Things were a bit chaotic in the early days of the canteen, to say the least. When I got down to the station that first day, there were women everywhere, all busier than squirrels in autumn. We made 300 sandwiches that first day. The second day, we had postcards to distribute, large tubs of ice water to fill, and tea to make. There were extra lunches and drinks to make for the families who were seeing the hometown boys off. It was just chaos. The time went by so fast, it was so busy, but the madness really started when the soldiers began showing up. Before we knew it, the train was coming into Kemper Station. We made the rounds, passing out sandwiches and greeting the soldiers. The men from Lynchburg said goodbye to their families. There was lots of crying, and then they were all gone. It was over, or so I thought. Mrs. McLeod came over to me and asked if I'd be willing to help out on a regular basis. A regular basis, I asked. Why? She said, dear, those men and many more are headed south for training. And after that, all of them have to go north to embark overseas. Most are going to pass right through this station, looking for a good meal and some kindness. So I stayed on to help. There were about 50 of us who worked at the canteen. We had this little hut, more of a shanty than anything. But then in November 1917, the, the Red Cross came to help and things got better. They brought all sorts of nice supplies and even an emergency cot and medicine cabinet and uniforms. We wore aprons with pockets and big collars and white hats, like nurses. We all looked very smart. The Lynchburg Foundry built a little hospital room for those men who had gotten sick along the way. When the grip swept through in the winter of 1918, that came in handy. Our little canteen hut became so well known that when the trains arrived, 
the men would just hang out the open windows waving at us. We handed out sandwiches, coffee, and postcards as fast as we could. Soon, the Lynchburg station was known as Lunchburg all over the country. There was even a story about us in the New York Times. Lita McLeod started to get a little famous herself. In July of 1918, she was invited to take over a canteen in England. The fame of the canteen work accomplished by the Lynchburg Red Cross has crossed the ocean and the general chairman, Mrs. Lita McLeod, has been invited to take charge of an important canteen in Europe. A cablegram to the American Red Cross Society asked its good offices in inducing Mrs. McLeod to go there. It is not known here what her decision will be. If Mrs. McLeod looks with favor upon the call, the fact that she has a son in France, Lieutenant Charles McLeod, may prevent her from going abroad, but this has not prevented her from being asked to go to Washington for a conference. Our resident historian, Ted Delaney, discussed World War I and the role of the canteen women. I'm Ted Delaney, director of the Lynchburg Museum System, and I'm joined now by Dr. Jerry Shereko, professor of history at Randolph College, and Dr. Laura Macaluso, public history specialist for the Lynchburg Museum System. Welcome to you both. Thank you, Ted. Yes, thank you. Happy to be here. Let me start by reading a quotation to you from a woman named Lucille McWayne Watson. She wrote this in 1927, and she was reflecting back on her work at the Red Cross Canteen at Lynchburg Southern Railway Station. She said, quote, it has never been known just how the nickname Lynchburg first substituted itself for Lynchburg, for not only did this become the acceptable designation for the canteen among the troops, but even mail thus addressed was received several times. Train conductors reported inquiries 100 miles away as to when they were due in Lunchburg. When the trains did arrive, the men would be crowded on the platforms and steps so as to lose no time in the dash to the hut. Surely this reputation must have been based on the advertising of others gone before, unquote. So clearly Lynchburg was unique in that it got this nickname Lunchburg. But I'm wondering, was Lynchburg's canteen really that unique in terms of the national story of Red Cross work and Red Cross canteens? I'm thinking, um, Ted, that it's kind of a combination of things maybe coming together with the name Lynchburg, which doesn't really have any other nicknames but this one. Um, so maybe it was just that some clever person uh, came up with this and it fed very clearly and very easily into the fact that they were women were doing this on a volunteer basis uh, for the soldiers that were passing through. So um, it's funny for me because when I first moved to Lynchburg seven years ago, someone laughingly said that to me, that that was Lynchburg's nickname. And I really didn't know what they were talking about, honestly. But now that I've read a little bit of the story, um, it's really iconic and important and a contribution for Lynchburg during the World War I era. Um, and it is unique for our community, but it's just important for me to always recognize that every community in the United States did something and did a lot, actually, on a lot of different small fronts within the large home front, and that this was Lynchburg's special story. That's my take on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of, I think, hundreds of canteens, would you say, across the country? That's right. And, you know, the, the canteen work is just a fraction of what Red Cross work could do or was doing. It was one path through which volunteer community members could work. But it's also about 
putting together gauze bandages that were directly going to the home front. It was about canning vegetables that literally in World War I were being given to the troops. I mean, it's so far away from where we are today and how the United States fights war today, where people on the home front, we might send boxes, care packages that communities put together of cards and chocolates and candies. But in World War I, people were knitting sweaters for European refugees. I mean, the, the amount of work that was done was, was amazing, I think. And it always impresses me how much we gave in every way that we could so you could give money to a war bond drive. There was just a lot of different ways to do things. And Lynchburg's little story is unique in that the tobacco connection, I thought, was really a, a, such a Lynchburg thing, a Central Virginia um, idea that farmers would give, would turn over tobacco crop so it could be sold. And then that money was used to donate to the Red Cross. So there's each community had its unique way. Yeah, that, that clearly is not happening everywhere. The a local newspaper I found from 1919, just after the end of the war, reported that hundreds of thousands of soldiers and sailors were fed at the Lynchburg Canteen. And I think it's very possible that just because of Lynchburg's location on railroad lines at the intersection of the, the uh, Norfolk and Western Railroad and the Southern Railway, that there were a lot of troops, maybe more troops than in most areas, coming through Lynchburg, going to either camps for training or the embarkation points like uh, Hoboken and New York. So Lynchburg had this special location, but, it, but in terms of canteens, there really were canteens all over. And work being done all over the country. All over the country, but also all over the Western Front. I mean, so I think that's the connecting point, you know, that we're doing this work here, but Red Cross and Lynchburg, in a way, also makes its presence felt there because men are going from here and fighting and supplies, in a sense, would be going too, one way or another, whether it's through war bond money or through vegetables or, or whatever it is. Yeah, I think it's important. Look at the, the big context, as Laura was talking about, right? The war starts in Europe in summer of 1914, we stay out of the war. In fact, in 1916, in the election, where Joe Wilson was running for re-election, his campaign slogan was, he kept us out of war. And so while we were engaged on some level um, with the war and things like the Red Cross and so forth, before we were in combat, we really weren't that involved until the spring of 1917, so about three years into the war. But once we were in, as Laura said, we were all in. And this is one of the things that we see, a lot of people know about World War II, but it really starts with World War I, where everyone is engaged on all levels and helping with the war effort. You, you might not be able to put on a uniform, you might not be able to travel overseas, but you're doing something in your community to help with that war effort. And that is something that we haven't seen since the two world wars. Mm. And it's probably worth noting that this was the first really major war that we were involved in after the Civil War. There was the Spanish-American War, but that was very limited mm -hmm. in, in time and scope. And so it really was, I think, a turning point for the country to have the sections reunite again. So why did the United States enter World War I? You know, this is a war that's very far away. Americans are not interested in getting in an international conflict. How is it that we entered this war? Well, in the popular imagination, a lot of people think the sinking of the Lusitania in May of 1915 was the reason why we got into the war, but that wasn't true. Backstory of that is that was an ocean liner. It was a British ocean liner. Of course, there's civilians on the ship, including Americans. Um, it was sunk not because the Germans were targeting civilians, but rather because we were transporting war material to the British. 
British were not our allies at the time, we were neutral, but we were willing to sell more material to the British. And so we were doing so. So actually the United States' own actions put those people in harm's way, but we could not believe that anyone would sink an ocean liner. Well, the Germans did do that. We protested, as you might imagine, and they reversed course. They said they would no longer target uh, civilian shipping or neutral shipping, and we were neutral. That's in May of 1915. Well, the British did a very good job of blockading Germany, and Germany was being starved out while the British were still getting lots of war material from the United States. And so in January of 1917, the Germans reversed course, reintroduced what's called unrestricted submarine warfare. That was tantamount to a declaration of war. And so it happens in January. By April, we declare war because, in effect, they had declared war on us. And the reason why I think that people were willing to go along with this is that, well, we're being attacked. Another country ends up being a belligerent, saying that we will sink any shipping that's supplying uh, our enemy, in this case, the British. We really didn't have a choice. And as I said earlier, once we that happened and once we declare the war, we were in for the duration. What about the average soldier? So the average serviceman, the average sailor, why are they fighting this war? A lot of it had to do with the patriotism of the time. A lot of it had to do with actually the push by the government. The government employed a lot of people who were in the advertising industry to push the war. It, it was called the Creel Committee, but it was pushing people the idea that we have a vested interest in fighting this war. The enemy isn't just someone abstractly who is sinking our ships, but rather there were an awful lot of really interesting propaganda films, propaganda posters that show the evil Hun, the evil German. Uh, that was for the first time when you see people trying to say that sauerkraut, which of course is a German word, should be liberty cabbage, right? So they really kind of vilified the enemy. So people were already kind of there with the idea, well, we are in effect being attacked by saying they will sink our shipping. But then to keep the momentum going, to keep the passion going, we really played up the enemy as being a truly a reprehensible enemy. Mm-hmm. And was, it, was there an element of this that uh, we were defending democracy and defending a way of life? I mean, did they go at that angle or was it really more just got this evil German Hun that we have to go after? They've attacked us. Uh, was it some of both? It becomes a little interesting, right? We were talking about fighting for democracy because who's on our side? Well, the British and the French, right? Democratic countries as we are. Russia has a revolution. There were two revolutions in 1917. The first one was a democratic revolution. And so while the, when the British were talking about fighting for democracy earlier in the war, it was a little strange because, of course, Tsarist Russia was the least democratic country in all of Europe, if not the world at that time. By the time we actually got into the fighting, The first revolution had made Russia a democracy or a fledgling democracy. At least we believe that's where it was going. And therefore, we could really play that angle as well. And that did mean something to people. So Mm -hmm. I think it's really hard. Imagine that you are alive, um, you know, in the 19 teens and you are bombarded. I mean, we talk today about being um, living in this culture of constant news cycles and images, and you can't escape it because now we hold it in our hands. But it was also, I think, truly significant and maybe maybe overwhelming, for, especially for those who lived in urban areas, to be surrounded by the conversation and the images and the newspaper articles and the magazines and your neighbors looking at you in a certain way if you weren't playing your part. I mean, I think there was a lot of you know, this kind of uh, collective mentality. And once it's, you know, once you form this group collective, 
to be different from that. And sometimes you find, you know, an individual who is different and they really are vilified. Even in the newspapers, a lot of men were actually named when they had not gone and done the draft as they were supposed to. So there was, I think, really pressure through the medium of advertising, as Jerry said, and images and the, the, the saintliness of mothers and womanhood and Christianity underlying kind of Western culture in the early 20th century. So if you didn't, you know, participate in that, then you were vilified again. You might as well be the enemy because you weren't one of us. And so it's, you know, it, we look at those images today and the, the graphics are some of them are they're aggressive and strong, and sometimes they're charming, and sometimes they're dark, but they are powerful, and you can't escape. You're thinking of the propaganda posters, the World War One posters? Certainly, that's the easiest thing, I think, for us to remember, because posters have been the thing that people have kept. Mm-hmm. But I don't believe that that was the only thing that people saw, because buildings had things hung on them, banners were hung, city greens were filled with images. World War I kind of came around in a very kind of organic, homegrown way at the very beginning because they didn't know what they were doing. And they were putting things together in uh, 1917, piece by piece in communities. And so they weren't separated behind fences. And you could see training happening. You could see Americans digging trenches here on the East Coast to get ready to go. I mean, this was actually happening in cities, believe it or not, on the edges, yes, of, of your cities, but mm-hmm. it wasn't separated. You know, the, today there is such a separation between civilian life and military life. You know, me, as someone who, who doesn't have any direct connections to the military, it really feels like it's a different world. They speak a different language. They live a different way. I don't know who they are, you know, but I think that it was really different during the World War I era. It was so much more bound together between civilian and military and um, what was happening here and what was happening there, much closer, I think. Mm-hmm. Especially when you have a draft and you have men who may not want to go, but a lot of men, young men, members of your family, your children, your brothers... Uh, I think think that changes everything when you've got that investment from the population. That's so true. There had to be a reason to believe in it because you were sending people to what seemed, I would have guessed, like a very certain death. Mm -hmm. Of course, people didn't know as much about what war was like then. The Civil War was decades earlier, um, and so they could have asked their grandparents perhaps about that. But there wasn't a lot of living memory of what war was like. And of course, a truly mechanized war like World War I had never happened before. We got a taste of that in the Civil War. But again, that's 45 years plus in the past. And so people were going overseas to fight a war in, in a, an abstract notion of what that means. There was a lot of censorship about of films and of photos of what the fronts look like. And so people could more easily imagine themselves going off and heroically fighting for this great cause without thinking about the consequences. Unfortunately, it didn't take long once you were actually on the front when you realized what was happening. And it is a mix, of course, of people who were volunteering to go and people who were drafted. And that was how we were able to get the numbers up. I think it's one of the other things we, we want to think about ourselves, particularly look back at World War II, that everyone rolled up their sleeves and went off to war in World War II. Well, a lot of people did, but many, many more people were drafted. They knew a little more about war by the Second World War than the first one. And they knew how the horrors of what could happen. And so that doesn't take away from anything, but it, it does sort of put it into a context where 
a lot of times these people, these men who went off to war, and some women too, didn't really have a choice in the matter either. So what sorts of things were women doing to support the war effort? Obviously, they can't serve in combat roles, but you know, Lynchburg's canteen is a good example. But what were some other things women are doing at this time to step up and to contribute and to show their patriotism? Well, one of the things was to serve as nurses. While they could not fight in, in, in combat roles um, within the Army or in the Navy or in the Coast Guard, they could serve as nurses. And so women, American women, were certainly not just nurses throughout this country for the combatants who came back home, but also were on the front lines. And so you found women throughout the fronts, uh, most famously the Western Front in France and Belgium. But that was one of the roles. Another role was while men were leaving factories, to go off to fight, women were taking over those jobs. It was always for the duration. That was always what was told to them. And it wasn't necessarily that's what they wanted, but that was what they were told, that you're doing these men's jobs for now. But what, of course, what they could prove is two things. One, they could be as brave as any man by being on the front lines. Mm -hmm. And also, they could do the jobs that they were barred from doing um, in factories. Um, women also were very engaged uh, in a local level with volunteerism. And I might turn this over to Laura because that's a lot of what <laughs> was we were talking about earlier with the with the Lunchburg canteens. Mm -hmm. Well, that's really true. Um, Jerry mentioned some great things, uh, but another thing that was kind of special that a select group of women did, um, and Ted remembers this because we did a movie documentary, presented this um, last year, about the Hello Girls, mm -hmm. about the need for French-English uh, translators. And this was a, an opportunity for women to step forward. Um, and technically, they thought they were, they were hired by the Army, that they were military. They didn't learn until later that, in fact, they were considered something different, consultants, but more than 200 American women went to the front mm -hmm. um, and did a, the job that was originally assigned to men, but men were actually slower than women um, at making the kind of uh, telegraphic connections, the phone connections that they needed quickly. And so John Pershing um, was the one who kind of opened the door for women to fight on the front, even in this you know small capacity outside of nursing or driving an ambulance, which some women did as volunteers. Mm -hmm. But the Hello Girls stories is a good one to remember because women would have done, I think, so much more if they had been given opportunity. But this was, you know, for a select few, they contributed immensely to the war effort. And as Laura said, they were not recognized as veterans because while they were working for the military, they weren't in the military in the same way. It was only under Jimmy Carter in the late 1970s that they received their veteran status. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and I see this as a thread that carries through all of Lynchburg history, through all of American history. When there's a war, uh, women step up. And another example we had in another podcast was the Ladies Relief Hospital here from the Civil War and how local women contributed to the nursing effort here. And it seems like in each war there's there's a role and a place for women, and women step up and kind of push boundaries, push beyond you know the societal norms or what's expected at the time. Well, they did really have to push Ted. I think you're exactly right, because um, nobody was giving them. Even the uh, Lynchburg volunteers apparently spoke about how difficult it was to get the men who were in charge to recognize their effort and to say, this is important and we're going to help you preparing coffee and preparing your sandwiches. The women just kind of pushed and forced that to happen. And then finally, the guys in charge say, oh, wait, 
our soldiers really do need this service, and a lot of it is coming through volunteerism, so what do we have to lose? And they kind of then crack the door just a bit, enough to let you know one leg through, basically, and women just keep going then and, mm-hmm. and push the door further and further each time, as you say. Yeah, so, Lord, that reminds me about another thing happening, happening uh, contemporaneously with this, and that is the women's suffrage movement. So what is what do you see as a relationship between what happened in World War One, and then the fact that we have an amendment in 1920 giving women the right to vote that they've been fighting for for 75 years, but that happened very rapidly in 1919 and 1920. That, that platform has, you know, it, war, as they say, Jerry, maybe you can tell me more about this, but war changes everything. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, you know, that might be really true for us, for at least for the American, for American society in the early 20th century, to think about where we came from with Victorian mores, with Edwardian, kind of the end part of the Edwardian times when, you know, moral code was was so constricted and placed women so completely within the confines of the home, within the confines of marriage and motherhood, within the confines of wearing corsets and clothing, particular clothing that strapped them in, to see that change so drastically just within 10 years, right? Clothing changes to reflect this kind of push back against the strictness of it. You know, the hairstyles change. Women being able to do these things, even though, as Jerry mentioned earlier, only for the duration, and then you're expected to go back into the home and pick up where you left off, where no one can do that. That's not human traits. You know, once you see the light, you're never going to turn away from the light. I mean, women could prove that they could run a household on their own, that they could be out and about in the public sphere on their own, that they could take initiative on their own, that they could be in a combat situation. Um, and so there was a great deal of movement. I want to always be careful not to say that women gained the right to vote because of the Great War, as it was called then, or World War I as we know it now, because they've been fighting as in an organized fashion since 1848 in this country and about just as, just as long in Great Britain. There was that sense that from some, well, they've now earned it because of what they've done. But what they earned uh, was the fight over the course of those many, many decades to have that right. At, in the wake of the war, there was no choice. But some people also argue that in some ways the war got in the way of the inevitable uh, suffrage being granted to women, certainly in Britain. It was seemed it was on the verge, but then the war happened, and then they said we have to push that aside. That's why British women got the vote, though not equal. They had to be age 30 in order to get it initially. But in any case, in the United States as well, it was pretty close to being something that was going to happen. So the war certainly pushed it over the top. But we want to be careful not to say the war. That, that almost means that men granted these women this after they worked for the war, as opposed to the decades and decades of them fighting for what should be a human right anyway. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Thank you. It always struck me the level of organization that happened at the canteen here in Lynchburg. The fact that after a couple of months of figuring out how this thing worked, they developed a system very, it's actually like a quasi military system where there was a commandant, there was a captain for each day of the week, there was a Friday captain who was in charge of lieutenants, and they all had duties and responsibilities. And so I see a lot of uh, cultivating leadership that happened in the canteen here and in other war roles. And maybe that just inevitably, Laura, as you suggested, carried over into post-war life. What changed for women in America after World War I? How were their lives different after having been through the experience of this war and the work they did in places like the Red Cross Canteen? I wish it was, this was an easy question, that 
yes, women had rights and men understood this and moved forward, but it wasn't that way. It's, it was an interesting sort of reaction after the war. Um, we were on the winning side. Of course, we never do sign off on the Treaty of Versailles. We go back into isolationism. And so we have to remember that the 20s, we have an image of the 20s of, of flappers, of vamps, um, of the Charleston, of an exciting time where it seems to be a constant party, but actually it was a pretty conservative time too. In 1920, Warren G. Harding, the Republican candidate, ran with the slogan, Return to Normalcy. And what does that mean? Well, what does that mean for women going back home? And so there was a real sense that the war unleashed forces that we collectively, and not just in this country, but we're talking about the United States, were uncomfortable with. This is the time of the Red Scare, the first Red Scare, the fear of foreign ideas. That translated also to the fear of foreigners. So we began to close down those pretty open borders that we had before World War I. It's a time of prohibition, which of course created a lot of crime, but it's also a conservative movement. So you think of prohibition, you think of shutting down the borders, not having so many foreigners or foreign ideas coming here. You see a surge in lynchings. Um, and in general, violence against African-Americans because of the sense of they better not think that they have more freedoms now because they were part of this effort. And while there weren't violent, there weren't violent attacks against women, it, it was not as free and it didn't move the needle as much as I think we want to believe that it did. It just unfortunately just didn't. I think it's really just what Jerry just said calls to mind just who we are as Americans always <laughs> From the very beginning to today, no doubt well into the future, because there's just these things baked into us, this constant tension between wanting to push things forward, but also wanting to hold on to the past and to the way that we romanticize heritage and and the way we romanticize the past in general. It's, it's this never-ending uh, story that we are constantly working towards, I think. And women certainly haven't gotten there, and neither have a lot of other folks, so we know that it's never ending. It's a long process. Yeah. Thank you both so much for joining me for this conversation. I've learned a lot and I really appreciate you being here with us. Well, thank you. Thank you, Ted and Jerry. As the canteen ladies watched each train head off down the tracks, little did they know how many young men would never return home. Of the 4 million American soldiers who served in World War I, more than 116,000 Americans died. More than half of those died from the influenza epidemic of 1918. During the 19 months that the U.S. was involved in World War I, about 50 Lynchburg men died from illness or combat. That was the part I never got used to, those boys going off to fight. You would think it would have gotten easier to say goodbye to them, but it was awfully hard on all of us. As we were passing out smiles, lunches, and our best wishes to the troops, we all tried not to think about how many of them wouldn't come home. I remember on July 16, 1918, getting word that Joe Brown had been the first of our city killed in action. A few weeks later, Charlie Smith got the Spanish flu and died while being treated at an Ohio base hospital. And then there was Harry Brooks, a Cotton Hill boy who died on Armistice Day, just moments before the war was over. Harry's poor parents had buried a young daughter, Ida, just a few years before the war. I can only imagine how heartbroken they were to lose Harry, too. 
The ones who died, their names are on the wall behind the Doughboy statue at Lynchburg's Monument Terrace. Many came home, though, even when we thought all hope was lost. Johnny Mays, who was wounded by a gas attack in the Argonne Forest in France, survived and went on to work as a carpenter at the Thornhill Wagon Works. And there were the Dyram brothers, Guy, Robert, and Patrick, close enough to be triplets. All three came home and made names for themselves in insurance, insulating, and wholesale businesses here. Then there was Dr. Harry Reed. He became one of the first colored pharmacists in Lynchburg, owning his own drugstore on 5th Street. I was there at the depot on Kemper Street to see them and so many others off as they left to fight. I just wish I could have seen all of them come home. American Evolution, Virginia to America, 1619 to 2019, celebrates the 400-year history of the Commonwealth of Virginia through public events, legacy projects, and initiatives like this podcast. American Evolution commemorates the people and historical events that occurred in Virginia and continue to shape who we are in the Commonwealth today. For more information about the American Evolution celebration, visit AmericanEvolution2019.com. To learn more about the Little Did They Know podcast and for photos, extras, and other information relating to today's episode, visit LittleDidTheyKnow.com.